Thanks, CY. Well, good evening and welcome to Uni Church. My name's Rowan. Uh, great to see you here as we get into this next section of the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, it's a great night tonight as we think through what God has to say to us. So why don't we ask him to work by his spirit, through his word, to change the way we see the world in line with his view. Uh, that's what happens when we open up the scriptures. Uh, that's what God does. He, he speaks this word to us and shapes us and molds us. So why don't we ask him to help um, us to do that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together tonight to hear more of your word, to hear what you have to say, to be shaped and molded, we ask that by your spirit you would fix our eyes on what you want us to see tonight. We ask that your spirit would prompt us and provoke us to change the way we view the world from the wrong views that we have to the way that you see the world, the way you made the world. We ask tonight that you would sift through our hearts and lives to show who it is we serve, who it is we love, and how we might follow you more. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Growing up in uh, high school, I pretty much hated history. I don't know if that's you. Uh, I was like, what's the point of history? What's the point of knowing what happened in the past that already happened? I want to know what happens in the future. I want to know about technology and cool stuff and making things. And so I, I never did any history, much um, actually now to my kind of shame. Because I think we learn lots of lessons from the past. Uh, and there's one lesson that I recently came across that I think really helps us understand this part of God's Word tonight. Uh, it's, a, it's a lesson of the Spanish. Uh, the Spanish, when they were conquering the world, uh, they basically came across a part of uh, Spain opposite Africa that they had, which they called um, really these two pillars, they called them. These two pillars that were there, they were called the the Pillars of Hercules. It's by the Strait of Gibraltar. Does anyone know where that is? Show of hands. Who knows where that is? Oh, look at this. Okay, here's a map. Let's have a look. I forgot a pointer. All right. What I'm going to do is show you where the Strait of Gibraltar is. Why can't I see it? Yes, I can. Okay, okay. I I need a point. Um, I can't reach. I don't know how to do it. Has anyone got a laser pointer on them? Ah, that would have been awesome. All right. Anyway, if you go above Africa, you've got Algeria, and across from Algeria, you've got Morocco. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah, great. And then you can see Spain above Morocco. And where Morocco touches Spain, it doesn't actually touch. That's the Strait of Gibraltar. And when the Spaniards took over this area, they kind of owned it all. They were kind of rulers of this area. And what they did was that there's two kind of mountain peaks in that Strait of Gibraltar that they talked about as the Pillars of Hercules, the great god. And and basically, they they used these pillars as kind of a, a statement to say that where they were there was kind of like the end of the known world. They used it as one of their kind of um, points they kept saying to the world around them. So much so that on their coins, here's a photo of their coin. Uh, that's, I think this is it. But they put these Latin words, non plus ultra, nothing more beyond. Right? That's, that's what they're saying. Nothing more beyond. And so they set up their, their emblem with these two pillars of Hercules, saying nothing more beyond this point. This is the end of the world as we know it. You just go back one slide, not forward. There we go. So basically, they're saying, if you go west, there's just no more. This is the end of the earth. We own the end of the earth. That's what they were saying. 
And they kind of wore that, that slogan with pride for many, 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 many years until 1442. And a man by the name of Christopher Columbus sailed a little boat past that point to discover... Go two slides forward. Oh, look! The Americas! Yeah, there he is. All one of him. They actually worked out that the, the, the pillars of Hercules and the Strait of Gibraltar was not the end of the world. That there was more beyond. And so in a kind of awkward moment, they took their emblem, which had that non plus ultra written across it. No more beyond this point. We are the end of the world. And they dropped a word, the non. And they put it on their emblem. Here's their emblem. This is Spain's emblem today. Plus ultra. You know what that says? More beyond. It must have been an embarrassing moment, right? Like We've got to change it. But what happened was a shift in their thinking. They actually went from saying, this is the end of the world and we are this pillar, to actually, there's more beyond this point. We want to explore the rest of the world. And they became explorers and that became their emblem until this day. Plus ultra, more beyond. So many people in our world today live with a crippling mindset like the Spaniards had that there is no more beyond this life. That the pillars of Hercules for us are the pillars of death. And we live our life here and now just for the here and now, thinking that there is no more beyond this life. It's a crippling mindset because if it's wrong, if there is more beyond this life, well, it changes the way we think about so much. If there is nothing beyond this life, then we live for the here and now. We, we try to milk this life for all the pleasure we can get. We make decisions around life now. How do I get the most out of here and now? However, as Paul opens up this next section of 2 Corinthians, his claim is not only that there is more beyond this life, plus ultra, but for the person who trusts in Jesus, what is beyond this life pales everything else in this life into insignificance. The more beyond is so much better, so much greater. The difference between no more beyond and more beyond makes a profound difference in the way we live, doesn't it? If there is more beyond this life, it will change the way you live. So come and have a look with Paul at his life-changing claim in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. And the first point, there's five, about evenly spaced. Sorry, I didn't get them in your outline. First point is this, our temporary tent. Our temporary tent. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Now at this point, Paul is not talking about architecture and buildings. He's not talking about your tent. You're like, oh, I had a Paul. No, I had a tent. Like, is that what he's saying? No, he's saying that our life, this life, our flesh and blood, the, the, the flesh and blood that is you and me right now is temporary. It's, it's here for a short amount of time. Now, I don't know what uh, you think of tents. I, I enjoy camping. Camping's a great thing to do. Uh, back in April, I did the Greenstone and Rootburn tracks down in Queenstown. And one of the things that I'd planned to do on these tracks was to take a tent and camp overnight uh, because there was no room in the kind of huts. That's why I wanted to take a tent. I would have loved to have stayed in the huts, but I had to take a tent. 
Um, see, when it comes to staying in huts or a tent, you kind of prefer a, a hut. Because when the temperature gets to minus 17 degrees and it snows, which it did, um, you want to be inside a hut. But anyway, so off I went. I went, went there and I went to the Department of Conservation. I said, great, I'm about to go. Got my tickets. I said, oh, by any chance, there's not any spaces left in the huts. They were booked out when I booked the campsites. And they went, actually, there is. And quick as a flash, I went, man, I threw out my tent. Who wants to carry five extra kilos? Right? Who wants to be in this little bit of tiny flabbiness, this little tiny little bit of tentness? When you can be in a hut with a log fire right, and warmth and electricity. And so quick as a flash, I went, I want, I want the hut, not the temporary tent. Paul is saying that our bodies are like a temporary tent. That there's a temporary nature to them. And if anyone knows tents, it's Paul. He was, after all, a tent maker. That's what he did for a living. Fixed tents, right? He knows that tents aren't made to last a long time. Has anyone ever left their tent outside for longer than they should have and it started to deteriorate and get holes and leak? Hasn't it happened? Or you've, you've left it and you're kind of like, wow, that didn't go well. Wow, is no one into camping? No one. Oh, there's a few hands. Yeah. I feel like, yes, yeah, that was me. Paul is saying that the beautiful specimens that are sitting here in this room today in our flesh and blood that we are, in all our, all our beautiful nature and all of our, our beautiful looks are just temporary. We're going to fade. We're going to disintegrate. We're not going to last just like a tent. But it wasn't just Paul's profession in tent making that helped him point to this idea of our our bodies just being tent-like and temporary. He's actually pointing the Corinthian church who's being sucked back into thinking like the ways of the Jews beforehand to Israel's experience in the wilderness. Do you remember when God took Israel out of Egypt? They were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God had given this promise that he'd make them into a great nation. He'd give them land and he'd bring blessing to the whole earth uh, through them. But here they were in Egypt. God brought them out through the Red Sea, brought the plagues on Pharaoh, come out on dry land. And they went then into the wilderness, into the desert. 11-day journey from the Red Sea through to the promised land. That's what it should have taken them. But as they went out, they rebelled against God. And so they had to spend a whole generation there. I'll come back to that in a second. But what they did when they were in the desert was live in tents. And particularly, they made a tent called the tabernacle, which just means tent, uh, for God to dwell in. It was a temporary residence. God didn't have a permanent place because they were moving around the desert, walking, walking, 40 years, walking, walking, walking. um, Because that was a time when they were living in tents. Paul is saying that the bodies we live in now are to have the same temporary nature as the tabernacle or the tent did in Israel's time in the desert. But when finally Israel come out of the desert, when God installs a king after his own heart, David, David's building himself a permanent house in Jerusalem. He's like, oh, we're going to stay here now. No more tents. I'm sick of tent living. 40 years, whole generation. It wasn't him, but generations before him. We're now going to stay in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he's like, I'm going to build a house for God, a permanent house. We want God to live amongst us. God says, no, not you, David, but your son will build me a house. In fact, actually, I'll build him a house. I'll build him a dynasty. And Solomon does build God a house, a permanent house. Paul is saying, that's the way we're to view our bodies now and what is to come. Our bodies now are broken. They are failing. They have raw nerves and physical and emotional limits. And as Paul does everything 
to share the news of Jesus like a broken clay pot with the world around him with this glorious message of the gospel that we looked at last week, his expectation is his body will break. It'll tear and rip, rip, flap in the wind like a tent. It won't just be a bit tattered and shabby around the edges. His expectation is his body will be destroyed. And he's okay with that. Living in a broken world, pointing people to a God they don't think exists and don't want to follow, is going to bring suffering on this earthly body. Living in a world that's hell-bent against God, uh, living as sinners in a world, is going to break our bodies. It will wreck us. It will destroy us. But Paul says, that's nothing to worry about. Like, what? Why? That's nothing to worry about because if you trust in Jesus, if you put your life in his hands, if you've trusted that his death was for you and you treated him as the ruler of your life, then this broken, failing and frail, decaying body is not your future. There is more beyond this flesh and blood. It will be flesh and blood indeed, but it is more. Point number two, our eternal dwelling. Our eternal dwelling. God has in store for us another body, for those who trust Jesus. Not a a non-temporary body, but an eternal body. Look at verse 1 again. For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Paul is saying we have an eternal body that is coming, one that does not perish, spoil or fade, that is kept for eternity. Well, there's no more mourning or crying or pain. That is the future. This is amazing. This means that the kind of the brokenness that we experience. Now, I don't know if you experience it. As I've gotten older, I've felt it more and more. You get out of bed and you're like, oh, that still hurts. I don't kind of recover as much as I did beforehand. I don't kind of remember things as quickly as I thought I once did. Well, I can't remember what I used to, how quickly I used to do it because I've forgotten that because my memory's failing, right? And I'm only 37. You recognize that there's a brokenness to our bodies. Paul is saying, but there is something so great coming. There is more beyond. This is not it. He says, not made with human hands. You're like, what is that? Why does he say not made with human hands? What's he getting at? Well, if you take that same temple imagery, Jesus turns up in the temple, the permanent dwelling place of God, And what does he say? You destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. What's he talking about? He's talking about the resurrection. This idea of not being made with human hands is this picture that God will make our bodies renewed, perfect. They were always made in God's image in the beginning, but now they will last forever because our brokenness will be fixed. This picture of of an eternal dwelling is brilliant, is so great. Paul is saying that for all of us with tent-like bodies, we can actually use the time we have in this tent-like body for the gospel. Here's a clear application. You ready? Because we are getting a new body and that is secure, we can use all the energy and effort that we have today in our tent-like bodies to serve the spread of the gospel. Now, this is not a kind of a claim to say, let's just go self-destruct. Let's just go psycho mode. 
Let's kind of turn on that and just go so hard that we just go tell everyone about Jesus and they're like, that's the first week and then we die. He's not, he's not saying that. He, he, he is saying though, um, think about the way that you use your body because it, it is only temporary and there is an eternal dwelling coming. Now we need to be wise. We need to have rest. We need to have days off. We need to trust that God can bring about his purposes, not just through me, not just through you. You are not the only person in the world that God can bring about his purposes in, but... I think our problem isn't that we give too much to him of our earthly bodies. It's that we're too precious, that we hold back. We're like, ah, oh, you know, I just, uh, I'm a little bit scared about the way that life would be if I quit my job and did a summer internship. Or if I, I told my friends about Jesus more often and, and it kind of, you know, it might cost me my job or my career and I get a lower paying career and that wouldn't be great for, I don't know, my shampoo product or whatever it is that we need to look after our earthly tent of a body. Our last century, a man by the name of John Patton planned uh, to go as a missionary to the South Sea Islands. And as he shared this plan uh, with a Christian friend, Patton's journal records that the friend objected to this whole thing. Don't go to these islands. He's a Christian friend, but he said, don't go there. You'll be eaten by cannibals. That's a very real risk as he went to the South Sea Islands, that that would be a possibility of him going and sharing the news of Jesus. But I love Patton's reply. He records it in his journal. He says this, It makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or like every other person, I'm eaten by worms in the grave. Either way, on the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Doesn't matter whether I get eaten by cannibals or worms, I'm still going to die. So let's go out proclaiming the gospel, using this earthly tent for opportunities to share the news of Jesus. What a difference it makes in the way we view our life and our time here and now when we know there is more beyond. There is a new body, a new existence in right relationship with God with no more mourning or crying or pain and sin being dealt with in perfection. It changes what we're willing to sacrifice now, doesn't it? But it also changes what we long for. Point number three. We groan for our new bodies. We groan for our new bodies. Look with me at verse two. Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven, since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we're in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Here Paul says, while he's living in this tent of a body, he groans, he longs for that heavenly dwelling. And he's got every reason to. Just in the last chapter, you remember what he catalogued about the realities of tent dwelling, of being broken clay pots with this amazing treasure of the gospel that we share. He said, we are pressured in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. He groans, oh, I long for it not to be like that. I long for this heavenly body. In chapter 11, we're going to see um, him describe more of his life. Look at this, it's on the screen. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. That's a lot of lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods by the Romans. Once I was stoned by my enemies. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. And by that he means just him floating. 
On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the open country, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brothers. Labor and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and lacking clothing. Ah, oh, my body groans. The Christian life, this life now, is not meant to be all rosy and great. Our bodies are temporary. We're in a broken world. Our bodies break. Our lives are hard. We have limits. And so Paul groans. But the point of his groaning isn't just complaining. Right? It's not the groan that I make when I get out of bed in the morning and go, oh, my knee still hurts right? from going up the stairs. Literally, I, my knee has been hurting. Uh, I went, before I did this walk, I went to the doctor and said, look, my knee uh, just gets after I run for about 15 minutes. It kind of gets sore um, and then starts to lock up a little bit. Uh, he's like, can, can you help me work through it? And they did these tests, kind of looking at it and poked and prodded. And he said, oh, the problem is, and wait for it, he said, problem is muscle wastage. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're just, you're losing your leg muscles and you need to actually build them up. I'm like, you're saying I'm just weak in one leg? He's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, I groaned, right? I long for things to be sorted and, and good. But the point of Paul's groaning isn't just complaining. It's a longing for. It's a longing for the promised resurrection experience. It's not just complaining about the here and now, but a yearning, a deep desire for the more that is beyond. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Please give me the body that that will be the perfect body. Not so that I can march around looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger used to look. (laughs) But so that the pain of life and the brokenness of sin isn't there anymore. I want to put it to you tonight that groaning is a healthy Christian activity. We should groan more, not complain and grumble, but groan longing for what is to come, longing for the more beyond. Groaning is the sound of what we call the not yet tension, the now but not yet tension. See, right now we can know God. We're in relationship with him, but we are not yet what we will be. We're in this age where they call it the overlap of the ages, where the age of death, we're still living in, people still die, but we've crossed over from death to life when we've trusted in Jesus. And the resurrection life is possible, but not yet fully here until Jesus comes back. We live in the overlap of those two ages, the now but not yet tension. And the sound of those who live in the now but not yet tension is groaning, longing, yearning for a new body. This is not all there is. There's more. We need to groan more, long more for the more that is beyond. But I think what we often do instead of groaning is grumbling or moaning. Same sort of thing. They rhyme with one another. See, we we confuse groaning with grumbling and it's a fine line. But grumbling is complaining against God. Why have you done this? Grumbling is thinking, and it comes from the thinking, that this life is all there is. Why have you given me this, God? Why is this going on in my life now? Why isn't this perfect? Why haven't I got the job that I want to get? Why haven't I met a girl yet or a guy yet that I could marry? Why is life hard? Why do I suffer with mental illness? Why do I have cancer? Why? And there's a kind of grumbling that we can get that it's focused on this life now because I want my life now to be better. 
Paul reminds Israel again, I think referring to that whole tenting experience in the wilderness of the dangers of grumbling. See, when Israel came out of, of Egypt and they were in the desert and there wasn't any food, what did they do? They grumbled. They complained, Moses, Aaron, we hate you. you what, we're going to die. There's no water. You know, and then God provides water. Oh, now there's this just weird stuff falling from the sky. What are we going to eat? What is that? Let's just call it, what is that? And they called it mana, which means, what is that? And then they grumbled some more. And that's what they do. We're going to die of thirst. And they end up saying, look, we think we would have been better off back in slavery in Egypt. Because there we had meat. Pots of meat. Deluded they were. And so they just grumbled against God. Listen to the way that the psalmist summarizes their groaning. Psalm 106, verse 24. It's on the screen. They despised the pleasant land and did not believe God's promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not listen to the Lord's voice. So he raised his hand against them with an oath that he would make them fall in the desert and would disperse their descendants among the nations, scattering them throughout the lands. Do not get groaning and grumbling confused. Grumbling says, I want more right here, right now, God. You should do this to me. You should give this to me. I deserve it. It's a a lowering of our horizon. Groaning is a raising of our horizon. Look what God has promised us. A new heavenly dwelling. I long for that day. I long for the more that is beyond. I yearn for it. I yearn for your promises. Groaning is a clinging to the hope of resurrection. And it requires confidence in the promises of God and in the resurrection. For Paul then tells us that this groaning that he has for this earthly dwelling is accompanied by and motivated by the work of the Spirit. And that's point four. The Spirit is a down payment. The Spirit is a down payment. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 5. And the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Now, while we are groaning and yearning for the new creation, Paul tells us that God has given us His Spirit. This Corinthian church that's there and wanting to listen to the super apostles, wanting to kind of go, oh, we want to go this way. And what Paul is saying, this isn't the the kind of super spiritual life. He's saying you actually have the Spirit and the Spirit allows you And enables you to yearn for what is to come. To be able to believe the promises of God. The only way we can know what God has said to us. Is if he reveals it to us by his spirit. If his spirit is in us. 1 Corinthians 2 makes that very clear. Check it out later if you want to have a look. God has given us his spirit if you trust in Jesus. He is in us and he helps us to yearn. And Paul tells us that this spirit is not only helping us to yearn. But he is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That we now have God with us, in a sense, a taste of what will happen in the future. When Jesus comes back and we are in our heavenly dwellings and we're with a new body and see Jesus face to face, he is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. But it strikes me that sometimes we speak of the presence of God's Spirit in us as though that is everything. Ever heard people go around and say, look, if you have God's spirit with you, that is what we need to seek. We need to seek more of the spirit because the spirit-filled life is living life to its full. I want to say the spirit-filled life is exactly what we need to be seeking. We, we need 
God by His Spirit to show us who He is and what He's done to convict our hearts, to comfort us, to challenge us, to change us. But He's only a deposit. He is only a down payment. I imagine for a moment that you've got a house. Right? You, you own a house. For whatever reason, you now own a house. Yours outright. No mortgage, all, all good. You own it. And I come and I say to you, all right, I want to buy your house. And you say, million dollars, average Auckland house. Okay? Million dollars, right there. Okay. And then I said, look, I'm going to give you a 20% deposit. You're like, great. Sounds excellent. We sign the contracts. I pay out $200,000 to you. I give you that deposit. And then I go, sweet. See you later. I take your house and never pay you anymore. What do you say at that point? Um, <laughs> there's 80% missing. <laughs> Where's the rest of it? He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. He is not our inheritance. How great it is that God the Spirit lives in us, but there is so much more, more beyond just our present experience of the Spirit in us, molding, shaping, changing us. The day Jesus comes back, we'll see God face to face. We'll be made like Him. How great that will be. Do not settle thinking even this is it as Christians. So Paul says in verse 6, as the Spirit helps us to yearn for the more beyond, this, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6, So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. Here we get to point five and our last point. There's going to be two subpoints under it, so there's your spacing. The last point is faith-filled living. We have the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And He helps us to live by faith, trusting in the promises of God. Did you see that? So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, in other words, we're at home here in the flesh now on earth, while we're here at home, we're away from the Lord. We're waiting for Jesus to come back and we want to be with Him. He says, 4 verse 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't see Him yet come back. We don't see the world as it is, but we know Jesus rose from the dead. We know resurrection happened and so we are trusting, living by faith. Now living by faith is not saying, okay, I'm just going to blindly, you know, just jump into something and just go, I'm going to trust it'll get me there. That's just craziness. To just blindly go, you know, I think God will give me a Lamborghini. I'm living by faith. You know, no, not at all. Um, Living by faith means to trust, to rely, to depend on things that are reliable, dependable. You trust uh, every time. You live by faith every time you get on a bus. Who who here has been on a bus? Show of hands. Well done. Okay. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you got on that bus, did you check the bus driver had a bus license? Hand up if you did. Oh, you guys, blind faith, look at you. You put your life in the hands of a bus driver. You don't even know you have a bus license. Living by faith means looking at the evidence that exists. He's wearing a bus uniform. There's people on the bus and they're not going, oh, this guy's crazy, right? You get on, you look at the front of the bus, it's got a number on it. Hopefully the bus will go that way, the number says. Hopefully with some resemblance of getting you to where you need to be on time. But you look at all that evidence and you get on and you trust. You do not know, you have not seen that it's going to get you to the end point. But you trust that it will, based on the evidence that is there. Paul says, while we are at home in the body, longing for our heavenly dwellings, longing for Jesus to come back for that resurrected body, we walk by faith and not by sight. Living by faith is how we need to live given that there is more beyond. We trust the evidence. Jesus really rose 
from the dead. Now, when we're at home in the body, it means we have not yet got what we were promised. It means we need to trust God's promises. Here, Paul longs for the day when he will be at home with the Lord, when he's able to see Jesus and enjoy that perfect relationship with him. But what's interesting about this part of the Bible is it touches on something that we don't often talk about. See, there's a couple of different states that are on view here. Firstly, there's at home in the body, away from the Lord. That's here and now. You and I, flesh, tently dwelling, flapping in the winds, bodies disintegrating, waiting for what will happen all the way over here when Jesus comes back. And then we are in this new heavenly dwelling made by God. No more sinning, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. But Paul here has got another question in mind. What happens if I die, but Jesus hasn't come back yet? What happens in the middle? If I die, can I trust that if I'm going to live all for Jesus now and I'm going to live in this earthly tent of a body, but that Jesus hasn't come back yet, when I die, what will happen in the middle? And that's where I think we get verse 8. I think it's talking about what we call the intermediate state. What happens between when we die and Jesus comes back? Look at verse 8 again. When we are out of the body, we'll be at home with the Lord. Now, out of the body can't mean we're clothed with the heavenly dwelling, because that's we're kind of we're there. It's a fleshly dwelling, but perfected. When we're out of the body, we'll be at home with the Lord. What Paul's saying is you have nothing to worry about. The more beyond is great. You, you, you die, you'll be with Jesus. Not yet in your new heavenly body, but you'll be with him. Waiting for that day when you'll be clothed with the heavenly building, our new body. We'll be at home with Jesus. He's reassuring the Corinthians as he reassures himself that there is more beyond. There's no reason to doubt Walk by faith, trust in what he has said. The moment we close our eyes in death, we will be with Jesus. That's what he's saying. The moment Jesus returns, we'll be clothed with the heavenly dwelling and new bodies. That's what faith-filled living looks like. However, however, there is one very clear warning and motivation for how we live in our tents called our human bodies right now. There's a warning and a motivation where Paul says, how you live now matters. Look at verse 9. Therefore, whether we are at home in the body or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. How you live now matters. We can't just go, sweet, doesn't matter what I do now. I'm just a tent. Chuck it out, doesn't matter. Life now doesn't matter. I'm just going to get a heavenly dwelling and everything will be great. No, he says, how you live now in this time we have now, how you respond to Jesus now, how you use your life and time now matters. We must live to please God. Why? Because there is more beyond. Because we are not living for the here and now. Our horizons have been lifted. We are living for God's fame, His glory, His way, which will be for our good because He is coming back and giving us this eternal dwelling. The way we live now actually affects the more that is beyond. The way we live now actually affects the more beyond. Look at verse 10 carefully. For we must 
all appear before the tribunal, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Paul, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to those that trust in Jesus, that have had their, their sins paid for at the cross, that it is finished. That they can say that I am now seated in the heavenly realms with Christ in Ephesians. He's talking to Christians and saying there is a reality of judgment for believers. There is still a judgment to come for us who trust in Jesus. It's not a judgment that will set our final destiny. No, no, no. That's already been sorted. That's clear. Done in Christ. It is finished. Sins are paid for. But how you live in this life does affect the life that is to come. You know, losing your salvation or you know, having a second grade house, only got a four bedder, not a five bedroom. That's really what I wanted in my heavenly dwelling. A five bedroom with a double garage. Now I'm only getting a four. No, it's not that. <laughs> but it's pointing to the reality that what we do now affects what the beyond will be like. Let me just pull together four little points in this just so we can see it clearly. Number one, all Christians will stand before Christ as judge. Very clear. That's a reality. Two, our judge will be Jesus. He is the one that is working out how we have lived in this tent of a body and how we have used that and whether we will be, um, the reward we will, we will receive we will be repaid for either the good or the worthless acts that we have done. Christ is the one who is deciding how we have lived and that authority has been given to him by God. Number three, that judgment will happen after we die. It's implied here, Hebrews 9, 27, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. After we die, there will be a judgment. And number four, when we stand before Christ as judge, will be judged according to how we used our tents of our bodies, what we did here and now. For we all must appear before the tribunal of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible that says that. Jesus says it in Matthew 16. The Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father with his angels, and then will recompense every person according to his deeds. And the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render every person according to what he has done. Please hear this. The way you live now matters. Paul would explain that to the Corinthians in the previous letter that we have recorded. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12. Have a look at it. If anyone builds on that foundation of the gospel... With gold or silver or costly stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become obvious for the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Fire will test the quality of each one's work. And if anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, it will be lost, but he will be saved. Yet it will be like an escape through the fire. In other words, we're to use our time now to store up treasure in heaven, to tell people about Jesus, to see things that are going to go beyond death, to think about the, the works that we have that will cross death, that there is more beyond. And I take it partly that the reward that he's talking about is what Paul talks about is his crown, his joy, the joy of seeing more and more people that he shared the gospel with in eternity with him. What an amazing reward, relational reward, seeing people standing with Christ. And so here he's saying, 
What you do now, based on the foundation of the gospel, matters. How you build matters. It's not that your eternal destiny is at stake. No, that's secured in Christ. But we are to use our lives now, these tents of a body, to see that the more to come is going to glorify God more, which will help us be joyful for us. There's a helpful story in the Old Testament that helps us kind of understand this, this kind of view. Um, it's odd. It's about two prostitutes who both claim that this certain child is theirs. Two women. And they come to King Solomon and they say, look, this baby is mine. And the other prostitute, she comes in and says, no, it's mine. It's like there's this tug of war between this baby. And they're trying to claim that it's theirs. It's in 1 Kings 3. So what Solomon does in his wisdom, when they come to him to work out what to happen, he says, okay, I want you to go and get me a sword. So they bring Solomon a sword. Then he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this child and I'm going to cut the baby right down the middle and you can have half each. Now to us, we're like, what? That is so not cool, right? That is not how you sort out this problem. Oh, we're like, no, 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 don't do that. But in his wisdom, God, that God has given Solomon, he works out the solution. He says, right, we're going to cut the baby down the middle and he's about to do it. And then one of the women says, no, 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 don't, don't, don't cut the baby down the middle. The other woman can have it. And at that moment, Solomon knew that that woman who said the other woman could have it was actually the mother because she couldn't bear to see her own child die. What Solomon was asking these women to do was to show them whose the baby was. He wasn't asking for a deed that would earn the child. He didn't say to them, I want you to go out and I want you to do this awesome stuff for me. And then when you've done this awesome stuff, I'll pick the best one and that one can win the child. He wasn't doing that. He was looking for a deed that would prove the child was already theirs. So Christ is looking for deeds that prove we are in him. He is judging us by, are you trusting in me? Are you standing on that foundation? We don't, we, it's not because we, we're trying to achieve salvation. It's because we have been saved that we act in that way. That judgment is looking at the way we have acted and saying, are you living like a child of God? And there is reward of sharing eternity with those we have shared the gospel with for things that have crossed over. Jesus says, store your treasure in heaven. Make friends that you will see for eternity. The question for us then is this. How will you live in the tent of a body that you've been given? Will you live the non-plus ultra life as if there is nothing more beyond this life? We'd be so focused on the here and now that you grumble and complain and are frustrated. Or will you hear this astounding news from Paul? That though we are broken clay pots, though we are frail and tent-like in our earthly bodies now, there is a new heavenly body coming because of the resurrection of Jesus. And for those who trust in him, that is your future. There is more beyond. Will you lift your eyes to the horizon of what God has promised us? And therefore, use your earthly tent of a body for God's glory, which will see you share in that glory, in that reward in eternity. On that last day when we are before the judgment seat of Christ, will we be standing there with the foundation that is Christ and a pile of ashes, nothing that has gone through the fire of judgment? Or will we be standing there having built heavenly architecture, having seen people come into the kingdom And those people staying with Christ for eternity and with us. Paul compels us that there is more beyond. 
And the Christian response is to long for it, to yearn for it, to live for it, and therefore use our lives for God's glory. Tonight, why don't you make a stand to say, I'm going to ask God to use me in this tent of a body for his glory and my good. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have not remained silent. We keep saying this, Lord. We come and, and the way we view the world, well, we, we drop our eyes to the horizon of this life only to say that there is no more beyond. Father, help us to base our lives in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That his death and resurrection secures our future and eternity with you in a heavenly dwelling, in a heavenly body, a body that has got no more crying or mourning or pain. Lift our eyes and hearts to not live for the now, but live for what is to come. And let that shape the way that we live now. Use us, we pray, for your glory and for our good. Amen.